Hello. 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 That's uh, that's my Mrs. Doubtfire. That's very good. <laughs> I, it, well, it's not bad. I mean, it's no. I'm no. Uh, I'm no Robin Williams. This the original, is true. The original uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. Um. Hey. So. Uh, so here we are, back at it again. Indeed, and we're, and uh, we're we're in uh, we're not in the same room as each other, which is I, which is a bit of a change. But it's from, way better from last time. It's so much. I, it's so much better. I you know it's really it's awkward. Well, it's yeah. I prefer not to be awkward. I prefer. I mean, I prefer my own awkwardness that I have anyway, without the added awkwardness of being in the same room and not and 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 not and sitting beside each other and not not staring, not gazing into each other's eyes. <laughs> And it's not like I don't like hanging out with you. No. It's just, <clears throat> I don't want to hang out with you while we're doing a podcast. I know. It's business. <laughs> business in the front. Yeah, business bi- and business in the front, uh, party in the back. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, got our, we got our business hats on right now. This is, and and this by is, business hats, I mean headphones. Yeah, my, yeah, my cans. I got my, my business cans on. I have, I have party cans, too. My <laughs> My Beats, my Beats Wireless, but uh, yeah, it's it's business it's business time. It just like uh, Flight of the Concords, it's business time. Do you know? Did you watch Flight of the Concords? Seems I, like that would be in your it, it is in your realm. Yeah, it's in my wheelhouse. Um, yeah. I um, I have started it again. It's one of those shows that uh, I can only watch by myself because it's not my uh, my wife's cup of tea. So, um, and I find it very hard to make time to watch things where it's just me. Um, right. Because if I'm by myself, I am. Probably doing email or goofing around on social media. I'm not sitting down to you know carefully watch something slowly, um, unless of course it's The Wire, which you know, which you're watching uh, for the fourth time. I've not I've not restarted it, although I've been feeling the itch. um, But there's so much other stuff I need to watch. Um, So and in the end, I it's it's kind of like having a whole lot of things to do. In the end, you end up not doing any of them and just feeling bad about it. (laughs) Right. Oh, so but read them on a list. I you should. Have a, you I should have a list. <laughs> Where, Actually, I have several lists in several different places, which I think is part of the problem. Well, well, no, just put a, compile those, uh, collate your list into one big list, and put on your list. Uh, watch things. Uh, what? Watch. Uh, you need a watch list. That's a That's a great. You know, I. That's a great idea to do that. I should put that on my list. You should put that on. A, make a list about things to watch. Well, um, no, the first. The first. The first step is to is to make a list about things to do, and on it put. Consolidate all your lists about things to watch. <laughs> right. Yeah, see, it's and lists w- all the way down, Ben. And then you can't check that off until until you've actually until you've actually done that. Yeah. I sometimes I you know I'm not a list person. Um, really? I, I, yeah, huh. and it probably shows, right? Like, well, I, you know, are you, so you're the kind of person that basically you have emails in your inbox, and then after it scrolls off the bottom <laughs> of the screen, uh, it's like it's off the list. Sometimes. And then, and then I'm, I'm back in OmniFocus, which is not oh. – I don't see that as a list though. Oh, right? like, oh interesting. Well, I mean it's not like a, a paper I, I list. Uh, it, it's, it's a bunch of tasks that I, that I have to do. I guess maybe it is a list. But it's not the same as, as the people that I know who are list makers where like at the start of a day or at the start of a week, they will – take stock in the things that they have to do. I use OmniFocus like as a thing comes up, right? I, you know what I mean? Like it's no. a, it's a different kind of, oh, you don't know what I'm saying? No, explain more. Okay. So like when, when something comes up, I put it in OmniFocus and that is a way for me to track it, mm. but I'm not constantly revisiting my uh, overall list. Like I don't have one, one list. I have one big database of things. I don't know. I don't know. I guess I'm not, 
I have I have some colleagues who every Monday morning will go and like start a new list. And sure, there are things that have carried over from their old list, but that's the those are the things that they're going to do this week. And I don't do that. I look at OmniFocus to tell me what are the things I should do right now. Mm-hmm. Does that? I- does that make sense? Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. What I do is I have uh, paper lists and I have OmniFocus, and then I pretty much just do what comes into my inbox via email, which I'm very sure is not a best practice. <clears throat> I do that too. I yeah. do that. Like it's only when I go to OmniFocus that I actually can can work through the list of, that, that I'm not. That's not really a list. Mm, that's good. That sound. It sounds productive. Eh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how productive it is, especially so. Um, you, you and I have talked about travel and stuff and how you, you have all the best intentions to be productive. And then you, then sometimes you are, and sometimes you aren't, but it's really hard to predict. Yeah. Travel um, hard. Travel, travel sucks. I so I, um, since I saw you last, which is not very long ago, right? Like two weeks since we spoke like two weeks from today, I believe, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, I've been to Florida Greensboro, North Carolina, Minneapolis, Minnesota, all doing things that were like fine. They were good. They uh, they were enjoyable. Um, I think they were um, worthwhile and in in some some way within my my realm important. But uh, I didn't. I don't have like sitting at my desk in front of my computer or sitting on my couch in front of my computer time to actually do the stuff that I that I really like. And and I you and I were texting on saturday which is not a normal travel day for me i'm very like hey i gotta get home i got stuff on the weekend but i got stuck in florida and didn't make it home for an extra 24 hours and spent um like all 24 of those hours in the airport or the hotel that was adjoining the airport and and did like couldn't get into it right like i just i like i like my and i and i was traveling with um, our our friend, who is a lovely, fantastic travel companion, uh, Leanne Jacobs, she and I we we had a lot of fun. We just like hung out and we talked a lot about a bunch of things. But um, but I didn't you know I didn't have that like hey I've got four hours I I want to get into the things that I want to do. Mm, that's so. interesting because yeah, if you think about it, it's like I've, okay I've got an extra twenty four hours that I didn't <clears throat> plan on having where I'm away from my family and. I could basically work and I could get like I could get like, well, not 24 hours worth of work done because you got to sleep during that time. But that could be a very useful time for doing stuff. But instead, you found yourself. Well, and part of it, I'm sure, was being distracted by Leanne's lovely company and having a chance to, to talk yeah. with her, which is good. But at the same time, it's like, well, geez, I could have gotten like at least a couple hours worth of serious heads down writing done during that time. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, and, but, but once you're in it, you're like, oh, well, I can't worry about that now. Right. Like you can get wrapped up into it and say, oh, and so I just, I just moved on. Um, I, so, so what was I going to tell you? Um, so I had, yeah, so I had some good stuff, uh, go on, uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my, uh, my, my trips. I got to go, um, last week, as I mentioned to Florida, to Lakeland, Florida, home of, oh. Um, our, our good, our good friend, friend of the podcast, podcast listener, she's listening right now as we see, we say this, except not live, but as soon as it gets, as she posted, hears this, she, as, as she hears this, she she'll is text listening us. and she she'll text listening. us. Yes. And she'll text us. Um, Michelle Danilock, who I got to see, uh, on Friday, uh, last week. Uh, but, uh, we were, uh, we were both at, uh, Publix, uh, headquarters, the, uh, the grocery store doing food safety stuff. Yeah. Michael, and, Michael, don't call me Mike. Michael, don't call me Mike. Also a fantastic uh, longtime listener, first-time caller uh, of the podcast. 
uh, zero, never called, but uh, it's because we don't. I don't know if you know this, Don. We don't have a call-in uh, option, but I'm sure. Are you sure? Well, I mean, people could call us right now, but they don't even know <laughs> we're talking. Um, That's true. So, uh, so anyway, it was um, it was this kind of cool day where um, where we uh, it was a small, a relatively small group of publics folks and other food safety friends, including, it, I mean, this was like a podcast reunion because um, uh, Deep, uh, Deep South obviously uh, was there and Dr. Freeze was there uh, as well. And, uh, and, and Michelle Danlock. And we, uh, we talked about food safety stuff at Publix in like a really like, I don't know, productive, non like luxury kind of way where it was a lot of question and answer and, um, uh, what, ideation, I think is the word that people uh, like to use. I don't know exactly what that means, but that's what people mention that. Uh, and, uh, and it was, it was really, it, it was very, um, uh, rewarding, I guess. And I say that with a question mark, like a Canadian would, but like, I think that's the, the word I'm, I'm reaching for. It was, it was different from, I'm going to fly in somewhere and give a talk and then fly out. It was, there was a lot of back and forth and, and it was really cool. And I don't, you know, it was, it was great to, to get an invite uh, to something like that. I enjoyed it. Uh, and I hope someone got something out of it, but we had good conversations mm-hmm. um, and that hopefully there's some actionable stuff that comes out of it. Yeah, I know. It's, it sounds, it sounds like a really, a really good thing. And, and, you know, and props to, to, um, publics for for doing that right for setting that up and organizing that for paying for all those people to travel and hopefully they will get uh, they will get some value out of it hey um you know talking about publics um reminds me of another uh big company that's doing stuff in terms of food safety and uh i am very interested to talk i don't want to take you off your uh no, your, no, your track but i want to talk to you about um something that's been in the news recently which is walmart's chicken safety program and i want to yeah. talk about um food safety and whether it's competitive or not and what you think about what walmart is doing Okay. So, so yeah, yeah, I, I like. So that. let me let me set it up. So uh, so we will link uh, we will link to uh, uh, this article in Food Safety News, um, and I'll just read to you from <clears throat> from the article, um, and then and then I want I want to hear what you have to say about it. Um, it says uh, the article says uh, with four steps, Walmart Stores Incorporated uh, has taken a giant leap in poultry food safety, reporting a decrease of the frequency of salmonella concentration, contamination of chicken parts to 2%. Uh, Walmart's great value brand chicken parts, uh, such as these drumsticks, and it shows a picture, are now produced under stricter food safety requirements, as is all chicken provided to the retailer by U.S. suppliers. The multinational retailer has been working with U.S. chicken suppliers on stepped-up food safety requirements since December 2014. Uh, Suppliers of chicken parts, such as drumsticks, breasts, and thighs, had until this June uh, to implement Walmart's four-part plan. The plan is working, said Frank Giannis, Walmart's vice president for food safety. Before the new supplier requirements went into effect, 17% of the parts provided to Walmart were positive for salmonella. By January this year, that number was cut to five. And then you heard me just say uh, a little bit earlier is that it's now uh, at 2%. Um, And then again, it says, yeah, and then continuing on. By June this year, only 2% of chicken parts from U.S. suppliers were testing positive for salmonella. Uh, And this was apparently a presentation that Frank gave at the IAFP meeting, uh, which we were both at. We just talked about that. Um, I did not hear his presentation. But um, anyway, 
some pretty interesting things. Um, oh, and just to – again, I won't read the entire article, but their four-part plan, uh, which I think is, a, is, a, is pretty interesting, um, the four-part – the four-part plan involves uh, primary breeder stock interventions to reduce vertical transmission of salmonella to broiler fro- flocks and application of the uh, USDA National Poultry Improvement Plan. Number two, biocontrol measures, including vaccinations of these broiler breeder flocks and use of disease prevention best practices. Whole chicken process control using regulatory approved interventions to achieve four-log reduction of salmonella species and, <clears throat> excuse me, Chicken parts intervention practices to achieve a one log reduction of salmonella species. So, uh, and, and again, just again, I guess I'm going to pretty much read the whole article. Uh, uh, Walmart's U.S. chicken suppliers accounted for 80% of all chickens sold in the United States. Um, oh, and so actually, yeah, so this is interesting. So, and so the enhanced food safety requirements imposed by Walmart are actually having an impact on chickens sold by other entities. So, in other words, uh, Walmart doesn't sell 80% of all chickens in the United States, but the people that supply Walmart are the people that provide 80% of all chickens in the United States. And so for some of their uh, production, they're following the stuff that they're selling to Walmart. They have to follow these requirements, but they're having knock-on effects or, or, or additional effects because they're seeing the benefits of doing these things because they're required for Walmart. And so that's going to impact uh, the overall uh, safety of the food supply. Again, if you, if you believe that reducing salmonella prevalence in raw poultry has a, a net public health impact. So what do you think of all that, Ben? Well, it's okay. So I'm going to start from the, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to work my way backwards mm-hmm. uh, on this. I think, you know, when you have a, uh, a buyer like Walmart and, and I mean, just the magnitude of what you said in the last uh, passage there on the, they buy from the same folks that supply 80% of the chicken um, in, in the U S um, that when they decide to make a change, um, or they want to, um, you know, protect their, their brand, protect their, um, their customers, uh, it, it, it's like, it has these ripple effects that, um, if it, if it works and, and, and they are, and it sounds like it's, um, it, you know, without seeing all all the data, it sounds like that that it, it, it is there's showing some improvement. That that has the opportunity to then impact public health well beyond just um, Walmart's customers. And I think that that's um, you know, on one sense, I mean, noble and, and 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 fantastic. And other sense, like it's kind of insane, right? Like that one. One buyer, um, and 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 fortunately that this buyer is, and we and we know both know Frank, and and we know um, have you know been um, sort of followed Frank and and his uh, journey with Walmart over the last few years. Um, fortunately, that that one supplier is is saying like, hey, we we need to get a handle on salmonella, so it can go like an, the other way if uh, that supplier or that buyer. Um, it didn't focus so much on, on on things like this on sort of performance as as it relates to to microbiology. So I, I just find that like fascinating and um and just you know sort of shows the the power of the Walmart purchasing model because you know as um, the individual from Foster Farm says, yeah, I would assume Bob O'Connor says here, right, um, that if you're doing something for your largest or one of your largest uh, suppliers. It's pretty hard to turn that off when it's things like um, 
uh, focusing on breeder stock interventions and vaccinations, right? Like you're not going to not invest in those vaccinations uh, for your other suppliers because you can't or other buyers because you can't really do that operationally. So it has, I mean, so you have this situation where, wow, that um, something like this could can absolutely make a difference. And it just, you know, you and I have talked um, a lot um, and, and I've written about this on Barf Blog and I know Doug and I have talked, I've talked about it with lots of people. Um, folks get very excited about um, regulations and um, requirements, government requirements and our, and our federal, um, you know, our friends in the federal government get very excited about it because that's what they do. But he like, holy crap, here's a situation where this isn't about the regulations. This is about um, one industry individual, one industry company who's large and powerful saying, you know what, salmonella in chicken parts is not acceptable and we need to do something about it, even though we're already meeting our base requirements for um, food safety regulations in, in poultry. Um, it's so it's the, you know, I, I, and I'm a fan of that. Like, and I think that gets to your, to your, you know, point of sort of marketing or competitive food safety, where it's not, it's above and beyond that, uh, regulatory requirements. Yeah. And, and, you know, I also have to ask, like, let's say I was one of these major poultry suppliers and I was doing these things for Walmart. And like you said, certain aspects of what I'm doing, it doesn't make sense to, to, why not do it across the entire chain? In fact, it might be easier. But then I also have to ask the question, okay, so let's say for this part of my chain I'm doing these things and this other part of the chain, I'm uh, the other part of what I'm producing, I'm not doing those things. And then that part causes an outbreak. What, what am I going to say to Bill Marler when he says, well, yep. gosh, why didn't you do this for, for, these, for these customers but you did for this customer? You know, what were you thinking? You clearly knew how to do it. You clearly were able to do it, right? And, and what's going on with that? And then the other piece, too, is ta- like you said, um, a lot of people want to see regulations because they think that's the way to compel change. But we've seen over and over again there are other ways to compel change. And I think we saw a similar – uh, uh, sea change when uh, people like McDonald's got together with their colleagues in public health and said, look, McDonald's doesn't want to make people sick. You people in public health would like to have fewer foodborne disease outbreaks. What can we do together um, to, to, again, to apply pressure up the chain, which is exactly what Walmart is doing, right? And Walmart has that, you know, love them or hate them, right? And there's a lot of people that, that don't like Walmart in terms of what they do, but, uh, but they have tremendous power. Right. And so yeah, and because of that power, they can use that power for for food safety. Right. And that's and that is probably a good thing. Again, as much as people love to hate on Walmart for some of their maybe questionable practices, I'd have to say in terms of food safety, I would stack them up against any company in the world because because I, I know Frank is trying his very best to do the right thing in terms of in terms of, of, of public health, which is good for which is good for the bottom line and is probably good for people generally. Yeah. I, you know, absolutely, and it, it, the, you know, we don't always get. I mean, the the thing with this is we we don't get the the full the full story. Not to be like the contrarian side of things, but what um, what I want, like, I just texted texted you a uh, a link, um, sort of around the same time that this uh, um, uh, story appeared uh, on August. 12th, August 11th, um, USDA FSIS 
uh, released a report, um, and and this is like something that that they do uh, sort of ongoing. This was serotypes profile of salmonella isolates from meat and poultry products from January 1998 through December 2014. And so to put the Walmart stuff, I guess, into a little bit of context, and this is where I, I get like um, I I want you know I want to know more of the story is. Uh, I'll go with with what you know. Food Safety News reported Frank saying in his talk before new supplier requirements went into effect. Seventeen percent of chicken parts provided to Walmart were positive for salmonella. That I don't know if that's high or low, right? Like I don't I don't get a sense of what does that mean. What what does um, you know Publix? What what's and not not to call them out just as as an example. Publix or Lowe's Foods or Harris Teeter or Kroger. Are they receiving 17% of chicken parts um, at, you know, with, uh, with uh, salmonella positives? Um, what is this? It, it, like, let's put it into context into the larger uh, scope of things. And so, from the the report that that we'll uh, link to in, in show notes, as I as I think I read this um, uh, correctly, I will. Uh, uh, where is it? Somewhere in here, it says something like 2.6% of all meat, poultry, meat and poultry samples that um, USDA FSIS took were uh, positive for salmonella isolates. And um, uh, I've lost it now. But it was, you know, and, and, and somewhere in right. here it says, says something about, you know, young. Yeah, young chicken chi- carcasses represented yeah. the abundance of positives at 68.6%, right? Right. So, so, so young chicken is highly positive for, for salmonella. Right, right. And so the – but young chicken carcasses are different, I would, I would think, and from um, chicken parts, Right? right, like there may be right. some uh, post carcass going from I don't know if it's called primal in in a in chicken, but you know when you when you take a carcass and you put it down into chicken thighs and drumsticks and breasts and cut it down, um, there there may be some interventions that are applied there. So so great. I mean this no no question. This is a really good Walmart um, story. Where 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 did we really start overall? And does this have you know? It seems like it has the potential to impact the overall, um, you know, uh, market on, on, on chicken parts, but, but let's put it into context and see if it really does, um, with, with all those, with the other, um, you know, baseline, uh, numbers. And, and I, so that's, that, that's my first, my first sort of part to dive into this a little further. My second is salmonella is a big deal. Um, right. Like it's, we know that, uh, if we look at, um, bacterial foodborne pathogens that salmonella comes up uh, it's high on our um, you know more till more uh, mortality mortality uh, mortal- and morbidity <laughs> yeah morbidity and mortality um, but Campylobacter from a prevalence standpoint um, is is so much more drastic now uh, I wonder if these four steps are also doing anything for Campylobacter and and my my guess, this is speculation, a hunch, is it's not because if it was, Frank would have talked about it. Hmm. I, I would have guessed it's exactly the opposite. And I would have said it's – I think it's highly likely that it is having an effect. And, right, and right. It, yeah. but, but the reason why they didn't talk about it is maybe they just don't have good data and we know – you know. 
Campylobacter is more difficult to detect. Um, the methods are more complicated potentially, and it, again, it's just not what you're what people are necessarily looking for. And, and again, Walmart has decided that they're going to focus on Salmonella right now, um, probably because it's a bigger target, you know, disease-wise, at least in terms of reported cases. Um, and so that's where they're going to focus. But I, I got to think that it's going to have a similar effect or maybe not the same magnitude, but it's got to it's got to move Campylobacter prevalence in the right direction, I would think, which is down. I would yeah, I would hope so. I want like I would like, you know, like I said, I would think and maybe this is just the, the you know, my assumption. If it was if if there was data on Campylobacter that, that they probably would have reported it because that's, a, you know, that it's an important piece. Um, but. We've seen, um, you know, uh, looking at uh, salmonella in poultry meat in um, the UK and salmonella in poultry meat in, um, like, the Scandinavian countries um, with focus on that. And I'll have to find some of the, you know, I don't have it on my fingertips right now. See if I can find some some data and we'll come back to this. But, um, you know, the focus on one pathogen has not um, you know, led to uh, the reduction in in, um, in Campylobacter. And may, I think mainly because, uh, you know, their measures have really focused on number two in Walmart's four-part plan, which is vaccinations. Right. Uh, and well, and that's and that's a really good point. Like for sure, um, vaccination against salmonella is not going to do anything for Campylobacter. And in fact, it might that might even cause that. You know, you're right. I oversimplify things. So, so well, I'm thinking in terms of log reductions. Right. If I yeah. if I have a treatment that gives me a four log reduction for salmonella, that's going to probably have a some some log reduction for Campylobacter. But you're right. Vaccinations uh, definitely not going to have an impact. And, and in fact, I, I got to imagine maybe in some bizarre way might even cause prevalence to go up if there's some yeah. weird you know biological interaction or the way that you're applying it i don't know yeah it's or a competitive so, there's a maybe a competitive advantage uh with you know uh campylobacter not having to deal with any salmonella right yep right yeah well and i and there's a wonderful article from many years ago in in science magazine i doubt we can find it for show notes but we can but i can look um which basically showed that one of the things that may have driven the increase in salmonella that makes people sick in poultry is eradicating salmonella that didn't make people sick that was actually made poultry sick uh, right a big a big push to do that and again it had unintended ecological consequences in the, in the chicken uh, ecosystem uh, microbiology is pretty interesting, isn't it? It, it like, is kind of interesting. Yes, but... <laughs> it's I, that that kind of stuff is you know the, is the most fascinating part about about what we do is um, if there were magic bullets, we would have found them by now, and <laughs> <laughs> right, like I and, think you're right, and, and that there are all these all these interactions. We we do one thing, and and we have. Um, you know the potential for for other things to arise, and um, and and it's all it all all comes down to um, what you and I what the focus of this podcast is, and that's what what are the risks and how do we calculate that and what do we focus on from a risk management standpoint. And and here, I mean, just to close the circle on this Walmart discussion, this is this is Walmart saying our risk. Um, that we that we are concerned about right right now um, as it relates to poultry is, is going to be in in, in salmonella mm-hmm. and and we're gonna we're gonna do four things uh, to to change that I wonder um, you know before before I move on to another question on this is going from seventeen percent to five percent to two percent if that is 
if there are seasonal effects for that, if there are other um, outside, um, you know, uh, the treatment of Walmart's intervention of the four point plan, if there are other outside effects as well. And I and I look at uh, one of the things that are that's mentioned here um, about um new standards published by USDA in February uh, designed to reduce salmonella and campy and ground chicken and turkey products and raw chicken breasts and legs and wings. So there may be just an overall reduction based on, on the regs um, and more or less, um, but I would think more based on the other above the reg uh, requirements. Right. And, and again, we don't, <clears throat> we don't have access to that data. I don't know how you, I guess what you could, you could, yeah, it would be it would be complicated to even d- try to right. answer that question. And of course, you know, we don't. It's not a perfectly designed experiment. Um, we don't have access to that data. What we would need would be again a company that that was only subject to the regs and didn't sell to Walmart versus another company that that did. And uh, yeah, it's it, it's complicated. Oh, and by the way, um, although I was not uh, uh, hopeful of finding this article, actually, thanks to Google Scholar and maybe picking some good keywords, um, I found an article uh, called "Tracing the Origins of Salmonella Outbreaks," which I believe is the article that I remember from uh, Science Magazine published uh, back in January of 2000. And so uh, we will link to we will link to the link to the article. And, and unless you're a subscriber to Science, it looks like you can't get a copy of it. But at least we'll point people in the right direction on that. So. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Um, hey, so as I was uh, browsing through the that USDA FSIS uh, report um, yesterday, mm-hmm. I had a question on this, and for you, mm, sure. So, so if uh, in, in here um, there is a table that talks about the top ten salmonella serotypes, and this is for calendar year two thousand and fourteen. So it's a one snapshot, and these are based on their sampling. And number one at the top of the list with a bullet is Salmonella, Kentucky. Yep. A two, 205 isolates out of their um, 18,000 samples. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, yeah. For- and 43% of the total positive. Yep. Yep. Um, Salmonella, Kentucky is not – and so I, I did a little digging on this. It's not one of the ones that – top pops up to the highest disease burden in yep. in the u.s right like we right. would see enteritidis we would see typhimerium we would see uh, montevideo which yep. are two three and four yep. so what what is what what do you think is going on there what do you think is special about kentucky why do we see such a high percentage of positives but not not um you know symptomatic uh you know public health burden well, I would say that, again, and this is just a superficial hand-wavy explanation, but I would say Salmonella Kentucky is really good at um, being in poultry, and it's really hard to eradicate for whatever reason. Maybe it's hardier than the other strains, uh, and, and, and but it lacks virulence factors for human disease. And so maybe the if we were to – if we had, you know um, – omnipotent knowledge about the dose response function for these different organisms, uh, I could, I mean, I could probably uh, speculate and say, okay, well, okay, given uh, levels of exposure like this, how much would I need to tweak the dose response functions for these organisms to get uh, to get uh, Kentucky to show up much lower um, on, on the public health burden, right? And so, and this is, this is something that I think microbiologists have been talking about for some time. It comes up 
a lot with respect to listeria um, because we know that what food companies do to control listeria is they try to control listeria in the production environment. Very often, they're not even speciating it, right? They're just looking at the genus level for listeria and with the idea that, well, if I just control listeria in my plant, I'm going to control listeria monocytogenes in my finished product and I'm going to control disease in that way. Um, But in fact, I've seen data that show that that might not be the case. And in fact, probably the best possible thing that you could do for controlling controlling listeria monocytogenes in your finished product is to have benign listeria species in your plant because the guess what? Those benign species are going to colonize all of those ecological niches where listeria likes to grow. And as long as it's a listeria species that doesn't cause illness or that's, that's much less, much, much less virulent than the ones that do cause illness, those are the ones that you want. And so again, this comes back to the idea that, that microbiology is, is quite, is quite complicated and that we really, in taking a simplistic approach, we might sometimes um, make the wrong decision. But again, without that knowledge, without that information, what can you do, right? I'm certainly not advocating that um, that we should have more Salmonella Kentucky, right? I mean, right, that, right. That's, not, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but it would be very interesting to know, like, what is the difference? And again, I think we're getting there with some of this whole genome sequencing stuff where we can begin to look at virulence genes. We can begin to look at genes that, are, that promote survival in, in, let's say, the poultry environment uh, versus, versus other environment, the poultry uh, rearing environment or the poultry processing environment. And so it's, uh, you know, it's job security for food microbiologists for quite a number of years to come. Um, just because we really, you know, the, the more we think we understand it, the more we realize that maybe we don't, we don't understand it at all. And so it, it turns out to be, it turns out to be kind of, uh, kind of complicated. And again, it's, uh, it's, it's good, right? These are, these are good and interesting times. Um, and we still, and, Ultimately, at the, at the end of the day, we still have to use the information we have to try to do the right thing, the, at least the right thing that we that we think we need to do at the time. So that's that's kind of my 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 two cents uh, on on that. Uh, yeah, and so I, I think this comes down into um, anything where we make risk based decisions, right? Like right. the risk, you know, risk, the of risk what. Is- and, yeah. and, and what are we managing, right? Right, yeah, we want to Absolutely. make intelligent risk management. So first of all, and again, I, I, I've had a recent, relatively recent situation where I had to explain to someone the difference. Oh, I know, it was an email discussion. I think you were copied on that. Um, the difference between risk management and risk assessment. And I'll, I'll find that email, about, I think it was about hand washing. Um, I'll find that email and we can talk about it in a minute. But, but so first of all, there's a difference between risk assessment and risk management. But number, but number two, uh, even our risk assessment and how we how we value things in the risk assessment make a difference. And, and how we choose how, uh, the risk of what and how we're measuring that risk that has consequences as well. Right. Yeah. It's it's fascinating to to jump into this, and it's not something. I mean, until you and I really started in, you know spending a couple hours every two weeks on the phone that I would think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is, and, and this is, um, it really does relate to, um, to, to, you know, to, to Walmart's, uh, focus here. It's, you know, we're going to, they, they're really very much going to focus on the risk of salmonella in general. And that's a, that's a good, that's a good thing. Um, but, does that have the same impact if they were to focus on the risk of Salmonella typhimurium and Salmonella enteritidis? And does it even matter, right? Like, does right. Do, do those do the four does the four step process um, or plan uh, you know 
is there any difference if we were looking at those that had a higher public health impact? So I and just to um, to continue on this, I just sent you a, a link and yep. a, a paper from 2001 uh, from uh, Arif Sawari, uh, who is uh, was uh, Department of Epidemiology and Preventative Medicine at University of Maryland, uh, and it's a paper. Um, from Journal of Infectious Disease called Serotype Distribution of Salmonella Isolates from Food Animals After Slaughter Differs from That of Isolates Found in Humans. And I will point to, for those who are following along at home, a table, table one, that shows um, uh, in humans, uh, human isolates of salmonella from 1990 to 95, so it's kind of old, 33,000 isolates. Kentucky made up 0.1% of those isolates. But when looking at chicken, which is a much smaller, um, uh, you know, sample um, of only 695 chickens, 17% of the chickens had uh, Kentucky associated with them. And so, I mean, I think that's it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. And it's not like I don't know. Just to come back, there there are no there are no magic bullets in this because the because the microbes are all they all act a little different. Yep, um, and you know, and I have to say too, uh, fascinating to look at the uh, the authors list. I recognize a few a few authors: Anne Marie McNamara, um, who, oh, yeah. who at the time was with. Uh, uh, OPHS, uh, FSIS, uh, Jill Hollingsworth, also at the time OPHS, FSIS, and uh, and Glenn, Glenn Morris, who was uh, apparently at three different places all at the same time, um, and who's now not at any of those. He's at the University <laughs> of Florida. So uh, yeah, so man, uh, what a, what a small incestuous and, and wonderful <laughs> world that we live in. Um, uh, that uh, that that we can have this article, but yeah, that, excellent, and we'll uh, we'll we'll certainly provide a link to the article for folks. Uh, yeah. So, so I want to, uh, if it's all right with you, I want to switch over to this this uh, this email uh, discussion that that uh, our conversation triggered in my head, um, yeah. which is which started with an email from Carl Custer, which again is a flashback. Uh, so this is this is all this is all new stuff that happened since the IAFP meeting. So, and I'll read the email, and we can't we can't. Uh, I, guess, I guess I could post a copy of the email discussion, but I, I think it's 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 probably not relevant uh, for 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 discussion here. So Carl Custer writes at IAFP. I followed a guy who washed his hands well, dried them, threw the towel in the trash, and opened the door. I remarked, I see you're not a microbiologist. He replied, I use microbiology in risk assessment. Uh, so first of all, immediately I'm thinking, hmm, did I, did I run into Carl was it in the restroom? Yeah, 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 right, <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't think it was, but uh, I don't know. Um, and and, and uh, so Carl uh, replies, uh, I quipped, this is I mean Carl, uh, yeah, but you opened the door with your bare hands. Microbiologists don't trust others to wash their hands well. And he signs the message, Carl Nerd Custer. Um, and then, yeah. of course, because Carl copies uh, random, uh, not random people, but, but uh, an assortment <laughs> of people, um, which appears to be uh, the selection of people. The people are not selected randomly, but the, no. the, the, the people he might choose to copy on a given message appears to be somewhat random. Um, uh, <laughs> and, they, and, and they fluctuate. And they fluctuate. From, they, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Variable, variable. Yeah. Um, and so Pete Snyder replies, Carl, okay, but no one has ever shown a significant risk. Have you ever shown 
have you, have you ever shown a report of a significant risk? And, of course, Carl replies, good point. Here's something old and something new. Uh, the something new is efficacy of instant hand sanitizers against foodborne pathogens compared with a hand washing and soap and water and food preparation systems, a systematic review, which is by Bodai et al., and we'll, we'll link to that. Um, and then a 1984 article from McIntosh and Hoffman entitled An Extended Model for Transfer of Microorganisms via the Hands, uh, Differences Between Organisms and the Effect of Alcohol. And then uh, Carl continues on, we could argue that hands are de minimis fomites. I'm not quite sure what that means, but, but I understand those words, but I don't know what it means. Um, <laughs> uh, after all, how many peoples are, people are carriers and even poor hand washing dilutes any pathogens present, plus transfer to the door handle and from the door handle is not 100% percent testify Don and then he cites uh, uh, Chen et al uh, my, my, my most I think my most cited paper uh, similarly not every piece of raw meat or poultry has pathogens there's not a hundred percent transfer the immune system can defeat low levels and I would argue that it's a dose response function um, uh, okay and then and then but my, then my, what I said is risk assessment answers the question what is the risk of illness from opening a bathroom door with bare hands risk management is deciding or not to use a paper towel and i was very uh you know often when i when i'm sitting there trying to decide what to do in response to a message from carl um often the response is to delete it because it just makes my head hurt like because he really makes me think right he does, um, he does. yeah but in great. this case i was like hey i win i figured I win, it yeah. out right there's no there is no uh risk assessment uh uh there's this is not a risk assessment question this is a risk management question we can talk all day about what the risk is but the decision there is no risk assessment that is going to tell you to use a towel right because that is a risk management decision so i, I felt uh i felt i was I, I came up with the right answer and it worked because i think that stopped the email chain <laughs> if that was yes. if my objective was to stop the discussion i did that so uh yay me i guess i, I don't know but anyway, we we will uh, we will do our best to link to these uh, these two articles, which certainly do seem to be very interesting uh, reading. I so I'll, uh, you know, well, I'm going to throw this back um, on you, uh, and I'll tell you um, how I handle this. I, I don't, I do not go and open doors with paper towels um, after I wash my hands. I don't like I. From a and there's my my risk management decision is uh, based on I. I don't think like that I'm effectively managing the risk of anything. Also, I'm not a food handler, so I have, you know, a smaller, uh, um, I guess, exposure um, population. Uh, but the, all of the other hand touch um, areas that I see, uh, that I touch uh, sort of all the time, um, uh, door handles, uh, buttons, whatever, um, I also don't you know, touch with, um, with a paper, paper towel or, or anything like that. And I actually, after this conversation happened, I have found myself, um, <laughs> counting oh. like stuff uh -huh. about like how many door handles after I go to the restroom that I might have the chance to touch. Oh, wow. And it's actually, yeah, it's actually very low. Hmm. Like, because, so this is, I mean, we can do a little, uh, quick uh, study on this but i i have in the in my travels in the last week because this this conversation came up on august 6th and i as i mentioned before i've been in like a bunch of airports and a bunch of different places um and meeting rooms and whatever mm -hmm. uh 
there's a lot of uh, push with your arm doors, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is my risk management decision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it has been my default risk management decision. Not a lot of pull with my index finger, which would be my other uh, you know, situation where I would hook on, a, uh, on some sort of a handle uh, for uh, restroom uh, situations. Yeah, How's that? that's like a risk manage- management decision. Yeah, no, so, that's that's good. So I, I let me let me share that I am a sometimes paper towel user, sometimes not. Just depends on how easy it is to do that and how I'm feeling. You know how vulnerable I'm feeling from a risk perspective. Um, my favorite bathrooms are the ones like you see at the airport now with no doors, right? So yes. they just create privacy by having a couple of twists and turns. So those are by far the the best, I think. Um, and yeah, the ones the push to exit ones, I'll always push with an elbow. Uh, g- I generally always push with an elbow. The ones that you have to pull, I don't like those. But yeah, I will hook with a hook with a single finger, um, and then. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then if, if man, if there's if there's alcohol based hand sanitizer, I will definitely use that. Especially if I can use that like on my way out of the bathroom, uh, that's that's definitely a a, a big uh, a big um, uh, positive for me when when that's available, or even better yet, when it's available immediately outside the bathroom. So you walk outside the bathroom and then you apply hand sanitizer. I think that's an excellent solution. And then of course, I think probably a really important risk mit- mitigation measure, Ben, would be to not put your fingers in your mouth or anywhere right. near your face. Right. That's that's probably a, a really good uh, practice. And again, um, I'm not so good about carrying uh, a hand sanitizer with me, not like uh, my friends at Gojo who, who have it on their little belt clips or, or my wife who does a really nice job of keeping hand sanitizer always in her purse. But you know, often we, if we're out traveling and we sit down at a restaurant, um, especially where it's food we're going to be eating with our hands, she'll pull out the hand sanitizer and I'll, I'll, take, a, I'll take a squirt of that because I think that is a, that is a good uh, risk mitigation uh, measure, um, uh, at least for, for many, many types of, uh, of, of pathogens again we know we've talked about many times uh, norovirus not always not controlled by uh typically traditionally formulated uh alcohol-based hand sanitizer so yeah yeah yeah. well and and let me uh, i'm gonna give uh carl some some credit um there were lots of credit i love carl and i agree i love when he sends me emails and it makes me think and and he's got he's a wealth of historical information um almost everything that that comes up somewhere in barf blog he he said yeah we talked about this at fsis like 15 years ago and here's the studies that that spurred that that conversation there is a difference to me on um hand touch surfaces in a restroom versus hand touch surface like buttons on a on an elevator you know going back on on what i said before because the likelihood that um, that someone has deposited something uh, and and it's their first touch, so the uh, transfer rate, um, you know, of in, in the stuff that that you've shown, which can be you know variable, highly variable. But say there's a 10% transfer rate um, on on average from you know someone's contaminated hand to that doorknob. The more things they touch, further away from that from that restroom, uh, the smaller likelihood that they may be depositing pathogens there. So, so that's, that's the door. If, if I was going to worry about a door handle, that's the one that I would worry about the most. Well, and I would say too, the other thing that I want to, that I would do in terms of risk mitigation is I want to make sure my hands are as dry as possible. And of course that the door is as dry as possible. And of course, one good way to make sure that, that the door is dry is to use a paper towel, right? Because, yep. you know, that's going to absorb some moisture. So I think really think moisture is a big part of that. And, you know, with this whole discussion, Ben reminds me of some research that we, I, this is the first, I think this is the first 
public place that I'm announcing this, Ben. That we just my student, my student Robin Miranda and I just had a paper accepted for publication in Applied and Environmental Microbiology. And you know what, Ben? Now that it's been accepted for publication, I can talk about it. And you know, do you know? Do you know what the topic is, Ben? The topic Uh, of the paper? uh, Can you guess? Is it uh, restroom uh, uh, door handles? Even better. Uh, Norovirus and drying hands. No, it's it's very popular. It's very people often will talk about this um, before they publish data on it, and we've lambasted them in the past for doing that. Um, It relates to a a concept in popular culture. Uh, The five second rule. Yes. Yes. Excellent. uh, So yeah. So uh, we. we just had a paper accepted for publication, and uh, I did uh, indicate to the editor of uh, AEM that I thought it would be uh, warrant uh, some press coverage. So, uh, so hopefully the press officers at AEM will talk to me. I need to reach out to press officers at the university because I want to show people how you do press on the five-second rule because apparently it's very popular. Um, yes. But you, you do it after the paper is published or after That's... the paper is accepted at least. And so we've, we've had the paper accepted. So I'm, I'm excited well, to uh, – I'm excited. And, you know, probably what will happen, Ben, is that it will be a slow – it will not be a slow news week. You know, uh, Donald Trump will say something dumb or something <laughs> important will happen. Uh, like Michael Lochte, Lochte will be arrested by fake, oh, yeah. fake police in Rio, um, and uh, and and my story will get uh, no legs. But uh, but you know you got to do you got to do what you got to do, Ben. Hey, and it'll be out there. And the next time you know uh, someone wants to, uh, it is a slow news week, and someone wants to talk about the five second rule, they'll Google it and find your paper. Let's hope. <laughs> let's let's hope. And, and yeah. Um, well, I, I like it. I look forward to uh, to seeing it. And uh, do you know if you Google five second rule, um, the, the first thing that co- pops up in my Google search is a oh gosh, it's a it's, it's a, is it a video Ben? <laughs> it's a website. It's a website of a, a of a uh, band called Five, five Second, second Rule, rule? <laughs> who plays uh, Irish music in Dallas, Texas, oh, which is that? the that, I mean that's the hot pet of Irish music. Um, <laughs> And uh, in a website or in Wikipedia, the five-second rule states that food or sometimes cutlery dropped on the ground will not be significantly contaminated with, quote, bacteria if it is picked up within five seconds of being dropped. And we might have to we might have to go and edit uh, Wikipedia and say uh, <laughs> bacteria and viruses. I think we've got to get we we have to get something else in there. Um, well, that's good. That's good stuff. And I look forward to having the conversation about uh, all the press. Um, hey, speaking of viruses, see what I did there? Yes. See, nice. see the segue? See what I got? I want to talk you about Hefe. Ben, you got, got a segue? Oh, I'm sorry. I got, no. I'm on a, I'm, uh, I'm on on a segue. segue. I'm on a segue right now. It's, it's rolling. I'm doing, a te- I'm a, doing a tour of downtown Raleigh on a segue. They made me put on a helmet. Are you it's doing uh, – what do they call that? What's the thing the kids do? The half pipe? The, uh, the, uh, the parkour? Three, 360s, 480s? What? I'm, yeah, I'm doing a, I'm doing a nine, 920. A 920. I did a 920 oh. like uh, like Tony Hawk, which reminds me. Speaking of 360, I want to talk about uh, at some point maybe in the in the after show. I want to talk about um, uh, Outlook 365 or whatever it's called. Um, do you oh. know what this is? I, I'm I'm so, I've, I changed my email address, Ben. Uh, I'm, I'm very traumatized. Yeah, I Outlook 365. Exchange, I, I have to use Exchange Server now. Uh, is Outlook 365 a uh, is that like a self assessment of where you? Uh, <laughs> 
where you are in your uh, in your strategic plan and ideation uh, phase? I don't. I don't think so. I think. I think it's. I think is it's, it a, way, it's a, a way you can do email every day, the entire year, every single freaking day, <laughs> every, including Christmas and New Year's. I'm really good at email every day. I'm already um, signed up <laughs> for Outlook 365. Is it? I. I think I, Outlook 365 is a. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to think of fun words now. Uh, I think it's a place where we do stakeholder engagement and uh, get together. <laughs> Uh, to uh, do some forward thinking and uh, get some call-outs uh, on, uh, on, our, on our plans and then uh, put together an implement- implementation team. <laughs> uh, we'll come back to that. Oh, and and, and, and speak, speaking of which, uh, we are going to, uh, to since you, we, we talked about editing Wikipedia, we are going to definitely link to the Weird Al song, uh, White and Nerdy, uh, where he mentions that he edits Wikipedia. So just, just a heads up uh, for those of you who are listening uh, uh, at home, uh, uh, look, check out that. It's, a, it's, it's probably the best video on the Internet, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> better than cats. Better than, well, it's better at, than... Least, at least as good as cats and Irish rowers. Irish Rowers, that's a good, that's a good video. Um, okay, so I want to talk about Hepe. Yes, Hepe. Because there are hundreds, no, like almost uh, two hundred people sick in, uh, in in Hawaii from Hepe. Oh, and Bill uh, Marler is flying back and forth frantically trying to sue uh, someone, right? Yeah, yeah, he's he's every, he's all over the place. Um, it, here's a fun like situation. I've been following this story for the last I don't know five weeks, maybe 168 mm-hmm. people sick. Wow. Um, uh, and I, I mean, we've, we've been covering this in barf blog. We've been writing about it. No source, no source. Then all of a sudden on Monday night, uh, boom, epidemiology says, Hey, it's uh, raw scallops. They knew it was, um, associated with, uh, consuming food at this, uh, restaurant chain called Genki Sushi. And that's not well, Genki. First, first of all, first of all, Ben, I would never, ever get sushi from a place called Genki Sushi. I just I, don't think that's good. I, might, I would get sushi from a place called Gangi Sushi. Do you know? Is uh, you got to watch the Gangnam, rest of it. Gangnam style sushi is that Gangnam style thing? sushi? Yeah. yeah. Um, so Gangi Sushi. So we got good happy here, and then all of a sudden we find uh, some Hepe uh, virus detected in uh, in these um, uh, frozen scallops, uh, imported frozen scallops that were served raw. Who, um, who wants to eat that? I don't know. I don't even like undercooked scallops. Scallops? Is it scallops or scallops? Would you call it scallops? It's scallops and scalloped potatoes. Huh. Okay. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I, good. I'm, I'm good with that. Um, so, I'm just making stuff up, Ben. Yeah, no. It's, I'm, I'm, I will go along with that. Uh, so 168 people sick. So I, um, uh, two, I guess two things here. Um, Horrible. Like, we don't have that much Hepe. You and I, a couple episodes, talked about how our vaccination program uh, in the U.S. has really reduced the likelihood of, of people getting um, Hepe. Like, it, it is, you know, a 10 times less likely. We've reduced it. it may, and it's maybe even more than that. We'll have to go back and, and find the CDC article on uh, Hepe vaccination effectiveness. Anyway, but. So we've got raw raw scallops, and I I got all like um, uh, based on one of my one of my students uh, Nicole Arnold who who just finished uh, just graduated she's on her way to uh, starting at Virginia Tech actually I think she started yesterday maybe at uh, Virginia Tech with Renee uh, Boyer she um, Nicole um, as part of her thesis looked at 
consumer advisories and communication around eating undercooked oysters. And, uh, you know, the, the situation to me is like this, and it comes down to our, our risk um, discussion. The risk of eating a raw bivalve mollusk or a um, raw scallop, which I don't believe is a bivalve mollusk. It's another mollusk that's not bivalve. But um, the risk of eating that from a... Um, uh, from a food safety standpoint, is there there are really two hazards that we would wor- that that I would worry about. We I would look at Vibrio, and then I would look at the viruses, and I'll put norovirus and Hep A together. Uh, by lightly cooking, um, a and, and so like steaming or uh, searing um, these uh, these mollusks, I I can um, r- reduce the risk quite a bit. Um, you know, get a five log reduction of Vibrio, but I do almost nothing for the viruses uh, hmm. until I get it above. Uh, you know, it depends on the on the product, but I looked at mussels. Actually, couldn't find a whole lot specific to scallops, but it's like uh, you've got to get the product to 100 degrees Celsius for a minute, or 195, uh, or sorry, so 212 Fahrenheit, or 195. Um, Fahrenheit, which is like 91 degrees Celsius for like a minute and 45 seconds to get even just like a two log reduction. So to me, even so, I know that this is a raw scallop issue, but even if these, you know, the contamination, um, these scallops have been contaminated with, with these viruses, even if they were lightly cooked, um, I, I I still think that there's a pretty it's a pretty high risk product. Yeah, you know, and and so a couple so a couple of things. So so number one, according to Wikipedia, Ben, which we know is never wrong, uh, a scallop is a common name that is primarily applied to any one of numerous species of saltwater clams or marine bivalve mollusks in the taxonomic are... family Pectinidae, the Ooh. scallops. Um, so they are bivalves. They are. They are. <laughs> um, they have valves, and they have two of them. I um, thought they were a univalve. <laughs> I think you're thinking of a unitasker. That's the thing that uh, Alton Brown will, will not let you have in your kitchen unless it's a fire extinguisher. Right, right, yes. Um, yeah, uh, but but, this, but your your comments actually reminded me of some work because because it's, it's for me it's all about shameless uh, self promotion. Some work that we did on ceviche, um, and we didn't look at viruses because it, it's hard to work with viruses. Um, I don't know if you know that, Ben. Um, but we did some work comparing uh, uh, effective lime juice on Vibrio and Salmonella during ceviche, and uh, really easy to kill Vibrio uh, with lime juice. Uh, rather difficult to kill Salmonella, and so I would put uh, viruses in that same uh, family as. Uh, as salmonella, <laughs> um, hard to kill. Uh, hard to kill with uh, with whatever treatment you're going to do. So uh, yeah, so this is really interesting, and I don't know. I mean, we we hear a lot about bivalve, bi, bivalve, bivalve, uh, bivalve mo- mollusks. <laughs> Say that <laughs> three times fast. Yeah. Univalve, u- univalve uh, mallets. Yeah, is what you're trying to say. Exactly yeah. what I'm trying to say. Um, we hear a lot about bivalve mollusks causing foodborne disease but not so it's mostly oysters and clams it's not scallops right that's that's kind of a new thing isn't it i yeah i mean for for me and in fact that's was i did a little bit of digging and i had um i have a 
um, undergrad uh, student uh, who works uh, part-time uh, for us, uh, Savannah. Um, I asked Savannah, I was like, look, I, I've been Googling the crap out of scallops and foodborne illness. Um, can you find anything on hep? And, and I could find a little bit, but can you find something on hep A and scallops or noro and scallops? And she's like, yeah, I can't. I don't, I don't see much. Most everything out there is on, on mussels. And I, I would assume, you know, mussels, oysters, um, you know, based, based, basically being that those are the things that we've seen illnesses in the past. So that's where we're going to put our resources. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, this, this is big though, right? Like, I mean, uh, this becomes, uh, I, I picked up something yesterday, uh, or late last night when I was doing, um, got, got home from hockey. You know what I do when I go home, get home from hockey, Don? Eat hummus? Uh, I, sometimes I do. <laughs> Not last night. What I did last night was I, some scallops. Uh, Cleaned out. I what I what I cleared out. I cleared out the news because oh, I can't go to sleep right away. Oh, because you're all jazzed up from your hockey. I'm, I'm all jazzed up from the hockey. And so what do I see? Uh, unfortunately, you know, um, Hawaii's like six hours behind or something. The East Coast maybe. So when I got home at twelve uh, thirty, uh, a, a story had just been posted at uh, you know an hour before at seven thirty. Um, uh, Honolulu time, saying that now we've got. Um, 206 cases of Hep A, um, and then there's a bunch of food food service workers in other restaurants that are that are now testing positive as part of this outbreak. So people who had eaten at Genki um, Sushi, and this there's one uh, one of the new confirmed cases was a food service worker at Hoikaru Ramen Santuoko, a popular ramen shop on Kahaki Street outside Don Quixote. There's a lot of things I mispronounced in that. The, but there's a, also there's a lot. You know what else? There's a lot of man. There's a lot of people in Hawaii that are going to need uh, Hep A vaccines if they haven't got them already. That is a, that's a huge. Uh, now that this is going to potentially explode, right? I mean, there's at yeah. least in terms of in terms of exposure. Now we're talking a lot of people. Secondary um, cases all yeah, over the place. from yeah. hepatitis uh, A from from all from this uh, Genki Sushi place. Yeah. So it's it's a big deal, right? Like we just we don't see a whole lot of Hep A cases anymore, um, and and so this one's now made. So anyway, going back to the start of this conversation, we've been following it for a while, but it wasn't until Monday night that all of a sudden this became a national story. When it was like, oh, it's scallops, and it was in CBS News and the Atlantic and Slate, you know, all the best, all the best rags, all the best uh, newspapers out there. Um, so it's. Uh, eater.com which i don't even know what that is it's a place where people who like food go i guess um it, you know this this is uh this is popping up it's a big it's a big thing oh speaking of which i'm gonna hit you cold with something you're uh-huh. gonna like no you're gonna like this um are you familiar with um i uh, i'm you know this is a family family podcast but are you familiar with uh i effing love science i am Okay, so you know, there's there's people that that aren't fans of of that, and uh, because you know, of the curse. Uh, no, I think that uh, I, I'm, I I follow it on on Facebook. I, I kind of like it, um, but uh, I, I think people are like, it's uh, I don't know. There's uh, I'll, I'll link to some to something on detractors of like it's uh, it's like the BuzzFeed of of science. Mm, okay, so with all with all the good and bad that 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 uh, comparison uh, encompasses. Exactly, exactly. So I'm gonna send you something. I don't know if this will work, mm-hmm. uh, but there was a post um, from um, uh, from I Effing Love Science mm-hmm. uh, that was a repost of 
uh, Bill Marler's um, oh. stuff on uh, five, six things that you should avoid. Uh, food, food poisoning expert here. I'll get it to you. I sent you the wrong link. This is fascinating for everyone. There we go. Food safety expert, um, uh, reveals six things he refuses to eat, mm-hmm. uh, has 17,000 shares. People Whoa. are all over this. Yeah. So this is, and this is one that's been around for a while. Cause then, you know, um, this, it was posted, uh, two days ago, but, but this list is, is something that we've seen, uh, we've talked about in the past mm-hmm. and, and, and built, you know, it's been around for a while. So a couple of things are awesome on this. Mm-hmm. I get, I, op- I open up my, my email, um, and, uh, I, or my Facebook and I read this because Bill, Bill Marler has commented on this huh. and I was like, Oh, let me see what this is all about. So I read it. And so here are the, the, uh, um, things in order. Uh, uh, we have number one is, um, raw oysters. Right. Number two is pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and veggies. Mm-hmm. We can, we'll come back to this in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have to go to next page and then there's a lot of ads. And then number three is raw sprouts, except the picture is of cooked Brussels sprouts. Which are not <laughs> raw sprouts. Number four yeah, is journalism ra- integrity. Yes. Yeah. Number four is rare meat. Mm-hmm. Number five, uncooked eggs, and number six, unpasteurized milk and juice. Well, and so let's if, be clear while we're while we're nitpicking the pictures here. The the picture of the undercooked eggs is actually sunny side up eggs. Yeah, no, it, right. So they are maybe undercooked eggs. Undercooked, yes, uh, but uh, uncooked. And then there's a lot of stuff. Anyway, this the the list is not what I want to debate. What I want to turn your attention to is that there are almost five thousand comments on this. Oh. Now, see, now fi- this is weird. The one, the the thing that I see says ninety one comments. Oh, so go to the Facebook page. Oh, okay. So look at the Facebook post, not the not online. The, oh, okay. And and this is as we have talked about before. If you want to see humanity at its best, go oh, to look at the comments I, on a Facebook just, post. I do not. I do not want to. I do not want to because uh, because people, Ben, people, people are awesome. Oh yeah, seventeen thousand comments. Yeah, I see. Oh what? my god. It's amazing. Um, I, I, thing, things like uh, I'm about three or four out of six. I'll eat pre-cut fruit from a juice bar only. Um, uh, scared, scared much of a little raw beef. You are such a – well, and that's a word that I can't say. Have a look at the chemicals we put in our own food. K-bye. Um, K-bye. K-bye is K-bye. my favorite. This article is bogus. You can't get salmonella from raw or undercooked beef. Should replace oh, really? The Wait, yeah, hey, can't, can't. Did, they cite, did they cite the literature on that, Ben? No, no, no. This is uh, Helios uh. del Toro. There's no uh, – it does not cite anything. Um, should replace that pick with chicken, mate. All those foods are amazing anyway. Um, there are just like – and I could not – I went back through about six or seven pages of these comments, uh, uh, mainly because I thought they were awesome. I see that Bill has responded to some <laughs> comments. Which that Bill, I couldn't Bill find. never, never engage, never engage the trolls. Bill, never. Yeah. Oh, How about- let me let me share some ones that have just come up uh, here for me. A much more likely reason for poisoning problems is that we have all become obsessed with cleanliness to the point that our bodies are no longer subjected to the sort of bacteria which we would have been, which would have been normal not so long ago. I think this person is correct. Right? What we should do is we should all eat these foods all the time, and then many more of us will die, um, which will solve one problem. Okay right there overpopulation and number two the people that don't die will have a uh, strengthened immune system so yeah go right right and um oh my gosh uh 
My favorite, and this is one. The, I, this is the one that actually starred. Oh, sorry, sorry. I, P.S. This food expert is an a hole. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so here's my favorite one. Um, someone close enough to a subject to see all of the possibly bad things that may happen, despite the incredibly low chance, is unable to be objective about their expert subject. No, that's my favorite one. Yeah, I'm not sure that's right either. But no, oh, especially for people that do risk calculations. Oh, um, God. So, anyway, humanity at its best. Um, I effing love science uh, and comments. But in four, like, here's the power of, of the internet. <laughs> in two days that this has been posted, you've got 17,000 reactions, mm. 5,000 shares, 4,000 comments. Um, pe- people sound awesome. People are awesome. Uh, okay. But, and, what, and so, but obviously, this went. For some reason, right, and I, this is this is this is the thing that's fascinating to me about social media is for some reason this went in a direction where all of these people who disagree with it were inclined to comment and weigh in, right? Like the comments, right. the the comments are not balanced, right? In other words, and, and I and I wonder, like, what? And again, this is this is probably more more in your your area than than mine, right? Like what? What drives people to comment on an article, and what was it about the headline or the people who initially shared this? Like, this obviously went off what I would characterize as off the rails. Yeah. And But why did it go off the rails, and why did it go off the rails in this particular way? Uh, you know, I, 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 it's, I, it's fascinating. And again, and, and a lot of it is probably buried in Facebook's algorithms, right? Because obviously Facebook is curating our feeds at is showing showing people this showing certain people this with a higher prevalence like for example i didn't see this right i mean i right. will occasionally see um things that like i've started seeing this thing on facebook now like this person that you follow or that you're friends with like this thing right and and right, and, right. and and so obviously i didn't see that that bill had liked it or that bill had commented on it um, but anyway, interesting, really interesting. Um, and, and yeah, that's just probably a whole dissertation in, in this one post and response. It's, it's fascinating this whole, and I don't even know what to do with it other than just sit back in awe. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think there's anything you could do with it. Right. Cause I mean, no. I, clearly you're not going to have a conversation. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, well, well, you know what, well, you know what you could do, Ben, is you could start a podcast and talk about it on the podcast. Oh, we did that. We did Perfect. that. Perfect. Boom. Uh, yeah, okay. But yeah, done. Uh, I will leave you with two more quotes, and we I, we have to move on because okay. we can just get lost in this. Um, this isn't really groundbreaking. This bloke sounds a bit precious. Okay. <laughs> and also, also another another comment. Uh, I, will, I will match you comment for comment. He sounds a little paranoid to each his own. <laughs> uh, how about cows are biologically different enough from humans and kept in such clean conditions that you could eat raw beef right off the body of a cow and you'd be fine. But, Don, mm. don't eat rare pork, poultry, and definitely never eat rare or even medium dumb game. But beef is fine even raw. If you're dumb enough to eat raw blood meat, you deserve food poisoning. <laughs> what are you, a vampire? <laughs> Time to unfollow. This is not scientific fact. It's a paranoid. It's it's a it's a paranoid solicitor's food hate blog. Ah, oh, so good. Uh, I, I eat oysters and sushi, and I'm perfectly fine. Regarding See? regarding the pre-washed fruit, I always wash it anyway. Clearly, uh, Florencia, you are not reading uh, the peer-reviewed literature where experts have said uh, don't wash it. Oh my god. 
gosh, this is so good. What an unusual thing to be an expert in, food poisoning. <laughs> not so much, Kelsey, not so much. We should, we should start a podcast where we just read from comments on the internet. We should, we should. That guy may be 100 years old when he dies, but never lived a day in his life. I don't know. He's, he flies to Hawaii a lot. I think he's living a pretty good life. Uh, he lives on an island, Ben. He lives on an island. I don't know. Okay. I, I don't know if I've, how much on this I can say, but there's one that says, eat a D, give me the oysters. Great. Uh, yeah. If the person has hepatitis, I wouldn't, I wouldn't eat their D. No D, no D, please. Oh, gosh. All this talk about steaks making me hungry. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know. We got to move on. We got to move on. My, my grandfather. I'm sorry. One more. Just it's like chips. Just just one more. Yeah. My grandfather ate a raw egg every morning for as long as I can remember, and never once got sick. Also, they were not refrigerated. Uh, oh, but, but wait, then. But ground meat shouldn't be eaten raw or really rare because the grinding allows the ability for bacteria to enter. Whole steak not as likely. Mr is the way to go. My family friends own a dairy farm, and fresh milk is amazing. Never had an issue. There's, a, the, there's just so much here, Ben. There's so much. You know, the great thing about the Internet is that everyone has a way to share. The worst thing about the Internet is that everyone has a way to share. Well, and, and the, the thing that I love about the Internet is it never ends. There's <laughs> can't sleep. That, Someone on the Internet is wrong. So Yeah, exactly. We, we and, will link to that XKCD once again. So good. So good. Anyway, so I thought this is this is uh, fascinating. So the, this, you know, this is um, of interest to us. This is a, a great post to look at what, you know, just to summarize here, what can we do? What do we do? Nothing. Right. Like we just just know that this exists um, yeah. and, and and that they're, you know, that that what people write and what they do and what they say uh, might be um true might not be and i just love that uh you know you don't want to be called an uh, an expert and tell people not to eat oysters because then uh people will say things like whatever i'll keep doing it only time i ever got it was from undercooked chicken mm-hmm. yep <laughs> oh gosh 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 um okay so there's that there's there, there's that there um hey so I, I, there's something you, uh, that you put in our, in our list that I blogged about, um, the other day and it's, uh, Dole and Listeria. Yeah. What, uh, what's your take on this? I don't know. I mean, I just don't, I don't know enough about this. Okay. And so let me, let me, uh, read, uh, a little bit of background. So we, you and I have talked in, in previous episodes about, um, uh, an outbreak of Listeria monocytogenes linked to a, a specific salad making plant uh, in Michigan and uh, in Springfield, Michigan, um, and 30 illnesses, uh, uh, you know, linked four deaths. Um, and the uh, if we go back in time and look at the um, FDA's in, uh, 483 or warning letter, I can't remember exactly what document it was, but some official document where they talked about. Um, environmental sampling that Dole was doing and that the you know, whole genome sequence li- linked it. I mean, from a, uh, and I believe that there were, uh, uh, I'll have to confirm this. I think there was uh, a product in Canada that, that uh, health, public health folks got and it tested positive for the same whole genome sequence. Um, so anyway, um, Dole's getting sued. 
and in uh, the deliberations, I don't know if that's the right word, but a suit filed in July uh, for the estate of Ellen Stefano alleges Dole failed to design and implement a food safety program capable of preventing listeria contamination in its solid mixes. The listeria was found eight times at the Springfield plant from March 2014 to December 2015, uh, according to this FDA uh, report. And then the suit filed in U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Ohio also claims Dole did not use newer detection technologies such as genome sequencing, which uh, that, that one I don't know if it matters. Um, but the most important thing for me was, um, you know, here we have an individual who became ill in January. She died February 27th, 79 years old, died from Listeria monocytogenes linked to this spot. Um, and the response from Dole's um, attorney, uh, R. Leland Evans, said the product was not defective at the time it left Dole's custody and control. Any later defect was caused by a substantial alteration and change in the condition of the product by other parties over whom Dole has no control. I don't know, Don. I know that's my like skeptical voice uh, that I just put on. What do you? What do you like? How, what, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, we fought, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so first of all, your your post is entitled "Dole and Listeria: The Shaggy Defense," <laughs> um, and immediately I thought of like, did he leave out a word? Is it supposed to be the Shaggy Dog Defense? Because nope. I don't know what the Shaggy Defense is. But then, of course, very helpfully, if you scroll down, um, you will see that there is a embedded video uh, from the the singer Shaggy saying it wasn't me. And I do have enough of a knowledge of pop culture to realize that I do recognize that song. And uh, yeah, and again, so it's the uh, it's not the Pinto Defense, which is no. another famous defense. Uh, which is what we met government standards. The shaggy defense was it wasn't me. Um, yeah, so this is, <clears throat> this is an ongoing outbreak. We are going to continue to learn more. Um, but th- honestly, this, this, this quote from R. Leland, R. Leland Evans, which is probably the best lawyer name ever, right? Um, it makes no sense to me. Um, the product was not defective at the time it left Dole's custody and control. So let's break that down. This is a listeria outbreak. We know that listeria was present in the plant. We know that the product, <clears throat> the product when it left Dole's custody, probably did contain listeria. And so my interpretation, what the lawyer is saying, is that the, when the product left our control, it had low levels of listeria. And someone temperature abused this product later on down the line. I don't think he's saying that we ship listeria-free product and someone contaminated it in the chain, right? I, 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 the only thing I can think is that he's saying is that it had, it had low levels of listeria and someone else caused uh, the listeria to grow up to high levels. Um, right, right, yeah. And I sort of get that Dole has no control. And this, this is a really interesting point, right, because we do know – that uh, – well, at least I, I believe that list you know, – because I'm a risk assessor and I understand dose response functions. I believe that low levels of listeria do not cause illness or, or that they are very, very, very – add as many varies as you like – are unlikely to cause illness. And that the illnesses resulted from people who ate product that had high levels of listeria. So um, 
but but I think your response, which is your forward response, show me the data, is absolutely spot on, right? Because so either your product had low levels of listeria, show me that, prove to me that all of the product leaving your plant had low levels, or prove to me that up the chain uh, people had uh, temperature abuse this product. So, I mean, I'm I'm somewhat sympathetic to Dole uh, in that I. But on the other hand, this is not this is a product that would support the growth of listeria, and because it's a product that would support the growth of listeria, then Dole should be doing something to control it. So, I mean, I guess if looking at it from a quantitative risk perspective, I would say some of the blame lies with Dole, and some of the blame lies with people that that temperature abuse the product. Um, and again, we need to know more about what was happening in the plant. What did they do to control the problem? How how aware were they of the problem? Were they doing everything within their power to control the problem? I mean, there's still there's uh, it's just a lot of uh, uh, there, there's a lot that remains to be seen. Um, and I would say also too, um, in terms of what our Leland Evans is saying, he's talking like a lawyer, which of course he's a lawyer, so he's going to talk like a lawyer. Um, I think we've seen that this is probably not the best way to handle this, right? The companies that have handled these kinds of things successfully in the past have admitted fault and have done their very best to compensate people and, uh, have, have not taken this, this rather, what I would, what I would characterize as a rather antagonistic approach. But, Again, we, we will learn more as uh, as this you know as this continues to unfold. Thirty illnesses and four deaths to count, um, and a re- as you indicate, in, as you link in your article, a resident listeria problem. So um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna learn uh, we're gonna learn more, and we'll see we'll see if uh, if there's data out there to support our Leland Evans uh, claim. Uh, yeah, it's so I, I have two two things on this. Um, I did find. Um, with um, uh, lab evidence, uh, this is from the CDC um, uh, summary, that there were laboratory evidence on packaged salads, um, not just epidemiologic, but so there was uh, some uh, finished product that had the same whole genome sequence. Uh, and then also um, in the FDA's uh, investigation, there was finished product sample and in Process subsamples collected from the water knife, the translicer, and the metal tray beneath the cross conveyor on the trim line uh, were positive for Listeria monocytogenes. And the thing, so so it's you know, I, it, it's one of those like okay, well we kind of do have a a connection here. It's not just the uh, epidemiological, which I, you know people call into question, which I'm not one of those, um, but. Here's the the other thing, and I think it comes down to the exact words that uh, that our, uh, our our friend R. Leland um, says, <laughs> and he says, uh, his friends call him R. R. Yeah, R. 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 Dot Leland. Um, the product was not defective at the time it left Dole's custody and control. What he doesn't say which I think FDA would probably argue with is that the product was not adulterated. And, and you know, so if there's well, a... Po- but Listeria is not an adulterant, is it? Well, so uh, if we look at draft guidance uh, by FDA, which I don't know what how this all works, but the F- this is quote, and I'll send you the link to this for show notes. FDA may regard an RTE food that supports the growth of L-monocytogenes um, 
to be adulterated within the meaning of Section 402A1 of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act um, when L-monocytogenes is present in the food based on the detection method indicated in Section 4A. So there are some nuances here that that FDA may actually, in fact, um, define that that is an adulterated product. And I don't know how they like how this works with draft guidance, non-binding recommendations, blah blah blah. But uh, you know, this is a draft guidance that's been out there for quite since 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think it's in it's in uh, FDA's. Um, the ball is in FDA's court. The sports ball is in their tennis court, Don. Uh, to to be asked the question, not just if it, like defective, but is it was it adulterated? Well, and I think the ball is also in you know the court of people like Bill Marler, who are obviously right. going to be representing these people and uh, that are going to uh, you know they're going to be sued. So we'll we'll find out uh, we'll find out what what a jury says, or we we probably they'll probably settle, so we won't find out what a jury says. But we'll we'll get resolution here, right? And and it probably will be. <clears throat> Not public, but uh, the cases will settle, and hopefully people will get compensation for for their illnesses. Because I, I mean, in my in my considered opinion, uh, there's probably some blame here. Yeah, and and here's like uh, l- let's think about you know we we have a situation where we have an individual here who you know who died, and there were you know four deaths likely linked to this to this outbreak. And let's think about where where blame might lie if it's not with Dole. Um, you know, the, the, I think you and I can imagine that the supply chain for a bag salad that makes it to, uh, an individual includes probably more than one transport, um, situation, uh, probably at least one, uh, distribution center storage, maybe two, depending on if it was shipped directly to a retail area or to food service. And then probably some handling of that bag salad in a, either someone's home or in a food service establishment or in an institution. We don't, I mean, we don't have all the particulars on that. Right. So there are definitely chances along that handling chain um, to increase temperature and have growth of Listeria monocytogenes and say, um, you know, going from four degrees Celsius to seven degrees Celsius to 10 degrees or whatever, whatever it is, we don't, we don't really know, but I, I do want to like, and not not you know this this will become this is probably predictable to you and to the listeners on on this i do want to kind of say that there's nowhere on this bag um lettuce bag salad that says hold this product specifically below 41 degrees to reduce your risk of getting listeria monocytogenes i mean it it, it would likely and i'll you know do some googling here and see if we can find some Dole labels uh, for um, salad, it probably says like refrigerate. Doesn't say anything about the magnitude of the risk. And I just don't think that's good, you know, communication. It's not like, hey, you know what? This is a really important step all along the line. Make sure that this is held below 41 um, because that's going to really do the, you know, do the best. um, that, that's really going to lead to the best situation for for risk reduction, where we're not going to get you know a growth. But it also doesn't say, hey, use this within four weeks or three weeks or two weeks or or whatever the, that time temperature combination is. It's there's it's it is hard for me to assign um, blame without without informed 
um, understanding of, of responsibility down that, that line, whomever that is. Um, and, and so what, what it kind of lies into, you know, into Dole's hands, I would say, is to provide some data that there might be some temperature abuse down, uh, down the line, um, that someone was acting outside of the food code or not handling it correctly or whatever. I mean, who we, I, we don't know the whole thing, but I, I just don't think, you know, Dole or anybody in, in the, in the food, production uh, world when it comes to salads does a really good job telling people how they should hold it to reduce risk. Right. And I can say, too, from conversations I've had with food companies that are doing risk assessment, uh, they do make assumptions about what the downstream temperature control is, and, and they do collect data on that. And, and again, I think it would be incumbent upon Dole to know something about the – because here's the thing. If I was making bagged salads, I would want to know what the downstream controls were because that's going to influence how I manage risk in my plant, right? So I need to, I need to know just how safe I need to be um, to avoid – uh, outbreaks and uh, or to avoid significant number of illnesses and I think that that's that's part of it so uh, you know they they need to know that and they need to like you said they need to put labels on the package to indicate how people are to handle it but then they also just need to know how people are handling it or mishandling it because that's going to be uh, that's going to be important in in the risk management decisions in the plan or at least I would hope that it would be well yeah and so I, I don't know if this is the exact same um, Label. I just texted you a, mm-hmm. a picture, and I'll give you. This is from an FDA recall announcement that has nothing to do with this this outbreak, but it's for Dole spinach, um, and it was for some allergy stuff uh, a while ago, um, 2014. But this label, it's hard to hard to read. Um, it says for the freshest taste, use within two days of opening and keep refrigerated in this breathable bag. Come on. Right. Like, how do you blame somebody that doesn't say like, you know, you're going to increase your likelihood of getting listeria because we might have some in our plants if you don't use it within these, you know, these time temperature parameters. Yeah, it's like it does, I mean, it's just uh, so. Anyway, don't 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 get me started, Don. That's a that's a Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, <laughs> well, don't get me don't get me started. Sam Kinison, I think, might have said that too. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But and and so and actually, let me let me like peel back a little bit because even if you put it in the label, it's not like people like follow labels, and it's not probably the best way to communicate it. But you but if it it, but you really need to at least put it in your label, right? Right. (laughs) Like put the right put the right stuff. Well, and and here's the thing. There's that's yeah. You're right. That's kind of that's a small place on the package, and it's a it's a little bit of text, but. You could, if you gave me that number of characters, I could I could design a better message that says that uses the same number of characters um, as for the freshest taste, use within two days of opening, and keep refrigerated in this breathable bag. Right? Like I, I, I could I could rewrite that message to be more helpful in terms of food safety. Plus, also if you look at the label, it says ingredients colon baby spinach, and then there's a blank space about right. about the equivalent as their their quote unquote food safety message right and then there's a copyright and there's their food safety message and then there's a kosher message um but they've got white space on the back of that label right uh, they they could be doing they could be doing more within that label given that 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 
white space, right? And maybe maybe they can't because some products, uh, like on some products, like probably that's the size for uh, all of their products, and some things, some products contain more than baby spinach. But you know, there's probably some there's probably some room for innovation there in terms of in terms of how you how you label that. Uh, I've got I've got to think that there's going to there's got to be some better some better use of that use of that well, label. Yeah. And, and if you expect people to do something with your product, you better tell them how to do it. Like I, I, right. I have low, I have low sympathy for, I don't have enough space on my package. You know what? It's your package. Mm. <laughs> like, it's not like someone's telling you what it looks like. Um, you're, it, it, it just goes to, to sort of show. And I, oh, I don't want to be like too try here, but it just goes to show like, um, you know, what's what's important? What, you know, if you really want people to follow something and you want, you want them to have all be armed with all the right stuff and you want consumers to do a better job, then tell them how to do a better job. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Don't tell them to, for tastiness. I don't care about tastiness, Don. Well, I, I, care, do. I, care, I care about tastiness. I do care about tastiness, but I don't, I, I but I also care about Listeria mm-hmm. and you're not going to sue me for tastiness or I'm not going to sue you for poor Lack tastiness. Of tastiness. Yes. Lack, yeah. <laughs> Cause I died. I didn't die for taste. lack of tastiness. Yeah. <laughs> ah, shoot. shoot, Don, shoot. Yeah. There I, is such I, a thing as a criminal lack of taste, Ben, but, but that's not what we're talking about here. That's no, that's a, it's, it's and I can tell that usually by looking at someone's shoes. Uh, <laughs> Or, or they're scrolling through their uh, iPhone uh, music playlist. Um, there's a you know any you know there's a criminal lack of taste with some of those uh, 80, 80s uh, music hair bands. Right. Um, uh, so thanks thanks for thanks for putting that in there. Sure, I, I wasn't able to get that all in in my in my blog post, but that that was I mean I there's I, I I'm writing things in a different way where you know what there's a lot here I think people can take like just by getting the right quote out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can take a lot away from it, and and that's where my my thought was. Show me the data, but really it was a fifteen minute discussion of all this stuff. That that, that that's why we have this different media. Yep. Yeah. You know, um, uh, John Gruber, who writes uh, the the Apple blog, Apple centric blog, uh, Daring Fireball, talks about. Uh, that he has two kinds of posts. He has longer posts, then he has link posts where he just provides a link and then and then a, a, a short uh, comment. And he refers to his his podcast, uh, the talk show, as the director's commentary. And I, and I like to think that we're we're emulating that in a, in a positive way, right? We use obviously we're using more than just uh, blog posts on Barf Blog, but I look at those as good jumping off points for. Uh, detailed discussion and certainly everything that you guys post i don't necessarily uh throw into the box for uh for discussion on the podcast but there are things that i was like oh yeah you know what uh we we probably have something to say about that so yeah, yeah. i'm glad i'm glad that we've we've hit upon a system that's working for us yeah it's good it's good um so i got uh, where, do you, where do you want to go i got i have one more thing but we're uh we're gonna we're gonna run out of time here soon yeah i, I, got, I got time i got time for one more thing okay um, so the one more thing, it's still Listeria, and it's and it's still uh, whole genome sequencing, and it's another thing that uh, uh, that I blogged about, and it's this um, Oregon potato company, which is also known as Freeze Pack, and they were connected somehow to this CRF frozen foods outbreak, which we've talked about in, in the past, where um, there were uh, illness. You know, we, you, you and I, I mean, full disclosure, you and I have, um, uh, are part of the uh, AFI scientific uh, advisory board, I think it's called. Um, so we talk a little bit about listeria and frozen foods. Um, and 
so this is a frozen food situation where um, we, you know, there there has been listeria in frozen foods. We haven't seen a whole lot of illnesses. And in fact, I think CRF was the first one uh, where there were illnesses associated with the with the product. And this one, there's like something weird here to me. Um, and and I, I think it's a larger question about whole genome sequencing, and it's a larger question about product movement. But so so let me set the stage. We have an outbreak linked to CRF frozen foods. Whole genome sequencing finds, uh, or sorry, through whole genome sequencing, there is a, a very very close match. Um, you know, a very very you know highly unlikely situation that um, the monocytogenies that's found in the CRF yeah, frozen foods uh, is different from the illnesses. But now we have this place, Oregon Potato Company, which is located in the exact same geographic location in Pasco, Washington. And they're making some other things uh, like diced onions. And they have whole genome sequence um, that is... Uh, and I'll read this from a uh, from my warning letter from uh, FDA. Um, whole genome analysis was conducted on 19 Listeria monocytogenes isolates obtained from the FDA environmental samples collected on March 8th and March 9th, 2016. The WGS phylogenetic analysis establishes that there are at least two different strains of monocytogenies present in the facility with one strain containing 17 isolates and the second strain containing two isolates. Specifically, the WGS analysis of the strain with 17 isolates are identical to each other and the two are identical, the whole genome sequence strain with the two isolates are, are identical to eight cases of human illnesses that are that date back to 2013 and six isolates of finished products. These include, um, you know, two onions and uh, green beans, uh, blah, blah, blah. And these ones are the ones that are linked to CRF frozen foods. So the, those illnesses are also linked to the same genetic um, strain, what, what FDA calls um, identical um, a WGS, which I, I have some questions on what that means from a molecular standpoint, but it's from a different facility. So there's something clearly going on here that there's a link, but is it, and, it will, and we'll never know the answer, I don't think, but is this, there's a common supplier source, there's an environmental source outside of the plant, and that this same strain has become uh, established a niche both in CRF frozen foods and at uh, also at um, uh, Oregon Potato Company. Like, what is what's the link here? What's the directional link? Um, I I don't know. It, this this actually leads me this leads me to more questions than answers. Um, in in the whole like molecular linking of of products. What are your? I mean, what what why why did you put this in in the in in the show notes? Was that what you wanted to talk about? Did I put this in the show notes? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I, I, yeah, it's a real, it's a really good question and it's obviously complicated and it, and we obviously don't have the full picture yet, but this is really, so there's a couple of things that are interesting. So number one, um, there's, there's 17 isolates 
that are identical to each other but are apparently not linked to human illness, right? So first of right. all, that's interesting, right? Because – and again, this comes back to our earlier comments about Salmonella Kentucky and the fact that, well, just because it's in the product doesn't mean that it's going to be causing illness, okay? And then um, the the second piece is, the, is really the more interesting piece, which is that you have um, uh, the – the second strain with two isolates, which are identical to eight cases of illness dating back to 2013, six isolates from finished products, onions, green beans, um, and sweet corn, right? And so, yeah, what's, what is going on? And I would have to say that this is probably a Listeria monocytogenes that is good at surviving in the plant environment and is good at getting into food and is good at causing illness in that food. So for a variety of reasons, right, that these, these are attributes of this strain. And what's the, what's the common source? It, it's prob again, you, listeria is, uh, as Joe Frank corrected me, it's not ubiquitous in the environment, but it is commonly it's found. Common. It's commonly found yeah. in the environment. It's probably common in that region of the country. It's probably common in fields and it's probably common in produce coming into those fields. We, you know, for the, the scientist in me says, well, I want to know a lot more about where did those onions come from? Where did those green beans come from? Uh, where did that sweet corn come from? Where, where, was, where was it grown? Where was it processed? How was it handled? And of course, we don't always have full and complete information. We probably never will have this information. But, you know, and, and then again, the other thing that we don't know is what is the rate that listeria mutates, right? Because these these are identical, but but identical, it's not in, in air quotes, but it should be in, in air quotes right. because they're never completely identical. And so there's a question as to how rapidly these strains diverge. And so maybe there's a common ancestor. And so then the question is how many generations back to find that common ancestor. And yeah, ultimately it, it should all make sense, right? Ultimately we live in a rational world and there has, there's going to be connections here, but what, what is the connection at this point? We don't know, but, but boy, I would sure be a lot more worried about the two strains rather than the 17 strains. Uh, cause those are the ones that seem to cause, to cause illness. Um, so yeah, I, it's a, it's a head scratcher for now. And, and, and it, we may never, uh, get uh, any resolution. Again, it's just sort of the same thing we were talking about earlier in the podcast. We, you know, it's great that Walmart is doing stuff to, to control prevalence. Um, and that's good. Um, but sometimes there are unintended consequences. And if you were to wipe out the isolates that don't cause illness or that aren't linked to illness, you might be opening yourself up to colonization by the strains that do. Again, I'm, I'm not advocating that we should have more listeria in our plants, but, but if it's more listeria that doesn't make people sick, maybe that's not, maybe that in fact is not a bad thing. So uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. And, and yeah, and for sure, uh, you know, the other thing too, we, which we've talked about before, if you look at the FDA um, visit to um, Oregon Potato Company, aka Freeze Pack, um, they found deficiencies. And okay, right. so that's great. So how deficient is this plant relative to every other plant? Right? Is this plant better or worse? Um, what's going on here that is you maybe unique to this plant or, or maybe not unique to this plant. So I don't know. Uh, I've, I've got, I've got a lot of questions and, and you, you are texting me. So clearly you have answers. No, I don't have answers. No? I just like, I, and as I've been thinking about this, I, I looked at the, um, okay. So, so say that there's some common source, right? Mm -hmm. 
um, it would make sense, more sense if, if these like plants, they happen to be in the same town, they're geographically very close to each other, but they're not next door. I mean, they're right. eight miles away from each other. Right. Um, so, so it's not like, oh, we share a common, um, we share a common parking lot or, you know, there's some, some out, outside source. Like, so, so to me, it's like a, a plausible situation m- might be we at some point and really like some point back maybe before 2013, maybe recently have a sim, uh, uh, share a same supplier because we both, both of these companies do a lot of different, not just potatoes. I mean, we got onions, we got green beans, we've got, um, you know, CRF frozen foods were called, you know, 340 different products, a lot of frozen, frozen fruits and vegetables. Um, we, we do lots of stuff. Somehow this listeria has appeared in both of the spots. The fact that FDA says they're identical is, is problematic. Um, CDC is actually not as, let me find this. Uh, I just had a little, uh, um, uh, Google session with the CDC. I may have already texted you this, um, report on this outbreak. They actually say that FDA collected environmental samples from the Oregon Potato Company located in Pasco, Washington, isolated listeria from these samples. WGS showed that listeria found in these environmental samples was closely related genetically to eight isolates from the eight ill people in this outbreak. Not they were identical. And that, mm-hmm. to me, matters, right? Oh, yeah. Like, like that. that so, so you have two companies that are both close in proximity both sell frozen foods. Epidemiology looks like it links to a couple of different things. We've got cases back to 2013. How, who made these people sick? Don't know. Don't know. And I mean, and, and yeah. I mean, but and we've got two potential sources. The law, if the legal side of things shakes out on this, I think you've got some really big holes to fill without further data, because. One company says, you know what? Yeah, we had the listeria, but it wasn't us. The other company says, yeah, we had the listeria, but it wasn't us. Show us that they ate our products. Maybe they ate both products. I don't know. Who knows? Well, and the problem is listeria has such a long incubation period, and um, many of these cases are years old now. So Yeah, yeah. and it's only us. And, and, uh, And I would say, too, as you were talking, a couple of other questions occurred to me. Um, to what extent do these two plants share common workers, right? So I Absolutely. work at one plant, I work at another plant. Okay. What about common equipment? You know, people in the food industry uh, sell equipment all the time. So uh, where uh, where do these plants get their equipment? Maybe one of them, um, you know, sold it for not for scrap, but sold it to the other one, right? And so what, how was wow. it cleaned and sanitized? What about trucks, right? Uh, so let's say the trucks are where the produce that's coming to these plants is coming on trucks. Well, what does the loading dock area look like? What do the what do the what about pallets? Right? Are there are there pallets? Are there boxes that are reused? Uh, so all all of that could could come into play here, right? And and I'm and I'm those are just the things that I thought of while I was sitting here talking to you. I'm sure there's even more uh, potential uh, commonalities. Absolutely. I mean, I hadn't thought about the the equipment. I think that's a. I mean, we've seen listeria and equipment before. Go back just on that same link that I sent you to. Uh, CDC's uh, outbreak. They have listeria, uh, listeria outbreaks. The bottom one on that list is Jensen Farm cantaloupes, where um, you know part of the uh, uh, thought process on that illness was uh, purchasing a, um, a equipment uh, cantaloupe sorter that was had previously been used as a potato oh my uh, gosh, sorter. Potatoes, right? Yeah. So I mean, just like 
uh, yeah, no, it's great. Good. All, all very good points. And I, and I think, um, here's the situation. I love whole genome sequencing. I think the more that we use the, uh, the technology, the, the more complicated, um, these questions get. And this, the, the thing that's great is five years ago, we're not having this conversation. We're not linking nine illnesses over a, a three-year period, two-and-a-half-year period, to one common source. It just doesn't – it's not possible. Now we're here. It looks like we've got um, a, a smoking gun, and, oh, lo and behold, we might actually have two smoking guns, and which one is the real gun? Yep, yep. Yeah, it's it's like a detective story, right? <laughs> it is. It's like it's like Law and Order. It's like uh, dong dong. That's my Law and Order. Sound. <laughs> I I got that. I think you like that. I don't even. I think it's I better. I think it's better than Law and Order. I don't watch Law and Order, but I, I think it's either. better than Law and Order. I was thinking more like that Agatha Christie, um, where where somebody gets stabbed on a train and it turns out uh, it's a whole bunch of people that stabbed them. Yeah, <laughs> Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, spoiler alert. Sorry, we'll, we'll fix that in post. Sorry, if any <laughs> yeah. of you have not seen the movie or read the book, uh, that was a spoiler for uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, we're really sorry about that. From I think a movie from like ni- the original, like nineteen thirty-six or something. Right. Uh, so uh, back catalog. Um, hey, uh, so I think that's a show. Indeed. Uh, good, good stuff, Don. Uh, I uh, I'm, I'm always I'm always jazzed to talk to you. And uh, you you do not disappoint. You never disappoint. Well, I'm I'm always rocked to talk to you, Ben. How about that? I like it. We're jazz and rocked. As long as we're not um, uh, new wave Scott to talk to each other. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, hey, it's been a blast. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. I think we uh, Jack is H might actually have to listen to the entire episode. My gosh, we didn't talk about anything but food safety. Wow, that was great. We had so much. Um, good, good, good. So this one's yours. Yeah, because we're now we're I got to re remember that I'm going to do the odd ones because I yes. was doing the even ones, but you did two in a row because you did the on site. So because I had yes. the yeah, yeah yes, which was a little more that part of my reason oh. for. It was a little harder. Oh, no kidding. It sounds like yeah. a lot harder because you had to re-export the audio. Yeah. And I haven't and then, listened to it yet. Is it, did it turn out okay? Yeah, I think it turned out fine. There's one spot where we had like a little blit where we stopped recording and re-recorded, and I didn't even cut it out. I was like, let's just put it. Like there's no time gap. It just is like stop, start. Um, yeah, so it, it was just – I remember, I forgot from last year how it's like because it comes in on a left channel and a right channel, and then I had to export it as mono. Mono, yeah. Um, 
and then had to make sure like I had to listen to the whole thing to make sure it actually worked. So, yeah. I, and then when I did, it was like, it was like, you know what, like old style MP3s that sounded oh, really yeah. like tinny. It yeah. sounded like that. And I was like, Oh, that's no good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, um, I finished uh, season one of Mr. Robot. I know I've been texting you and oh, I mentioned, I know it's so it's good. I've, I've heard it's good. I've heard season two is good. Yeah, I haven't even started season two. I have to get Danny to catch up on season one because I want to watch season two together. And it's, um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. So I have, th- there are some characters in Mr. Robot that I have like recently encountered someone who is like this guy <laughs> who is not the main character, but another character. Mm-hmm. And, and now all I can think of, like I, I, the, the person in, um, and Mr. Robot, his name is Tyrell Wellick, and he's he's like this really kind of mysterious guy who is um, has a, a he's of Swedish descent and is part of you know this whole this whole con- no no spoilers. Anyway, he's like there's some like creepiness about him in the in the show, um, and the person who I've interacted with who reminds me of Tyrell Wellick, I have like a I am skeptical of. I have this very guarded conversation. I was like, I don't know why. It's like, oh, he reminds me of this guy from a TV show. Not, I have, there's no reason for me to worry about this individual other huh. than he's just like this other guy who's creepy and oh, not real funny. and not real at all. Right, right, because it's fiction. Yes, it's totally fiction. So anyway, um, yeah, go watch Mister Robot. I know that I've told you that already. Yep. Um, cool. Okay, so let's let's go. I have I have a post after dark question for you so okay. so let's let's call this the end of after dark yes this is the end of after dark so i'm going to uh stop